Welcome to Radio Rehab. Here's your host, Dana Keys. Welcome to the new episodes of Radio Rehab. I'm Dana, and I'm a recovering addict and an alcoholic. I'm clean and sober right now, but I've struggled with the disease of addiction for most of my adult life. It began when I was a teenager. I've had bouts of sobriety, and even during the bad times, there's always been some part of me that wanted to live life the right way, the way I am now. This show isn't just for addicts, it's for everyone. Some of my guests will be familiar to you, but their stories will be new, heartbreaking, and awe-inspiring. If you aren't one of us, you surely know us. We are your wives. Your husbands. Your daughters. Your sons. And we've gone through hell to get to the other side. This show is dedicated to the ones who didn't make it. Welcome to another episode of Radio Rehab, The Relapse. I'm your host, Dana, and I'm an addict. I'm here with producer Shar. Hello. We've got a great show today. I'm excited for this one. I'm very excited. You've been uh, you've been telling me about it for for days and weeks of we talked about it in the last episode. Yeah, it's know. this is great. We have author Noel Levine. He's also a Buddhist teacher. He wrote the books Dharma Punks, a memoir, and Against the Stream. Both really great reads for anybody struggling with addiction and actually struggling with anything. I mean, he's got lots of of thoughts, lots of ways to get around these problems that keep us crippled. Great. I can't wait to hear about all this stuff. Yeah, it's he's a fascinating guy. And I, you know, me, I'm always looking for some way to help myself. You know, I'm always looking for something to deal with. I know it's really bad to mime in radio, but I'm pointing to my head right now because this place is crazy. Yo, it's I know. crazy I know. And you know, being my non-addicted friend who just has shitty taste in friends. <laughs> <laughs> I like to say that all the time because it's like, why are you hanging out with an addict? <laughs> but, I, and I hang out with many. <laughs> I know, you do. But we're all recovering right now. But um, but yeah, I... Yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say and the interaction between you two. Like, I mean, uh, what he seems, what Noah seems like his deal, like the stuff that he does, is a, kind of far away from anything that you practice. Yeah, it's different, and it's like you know, I get to these points in my recovery where I feel stagnant and I feel like I need something else, and I never know what that thing is. And, you know, I look at these these things that other people I know do. And for some reason, it just doesn't resonate with me. It doesn't touch me. But, like, when I read what he's written and he said a lot of things that sparked my interest. So, um, and he's got, it It looks, he you know, he's written a couple of books and he's been around, he's been doing this for a while. And uh, so there's a lot of people out there that are listening to our show for the first time that have never heard radio rehab. Right. And, um, so, uh, for those of you, for those that are listening for the first time, welcome. Thank you. Welcome to radio rehab. Thank you for coming and um, like us and subscribe. Exactly. (laughs) And, uh, and we want to hear what you have to say. We're, you know, like this show has been around for since, uh, late last year. Yeah. And we're so many episodes in and, um, if you like what you hear, let us know. Um, if you, uh, you know, please subscribe. 
please subscribe. And all of that can be done. Also, you can write us Radio Rehab at GoToProductions.com. That's G-O-T-O Productions.com. You can call or text us anytime, even when we're not in the studio, 415-496-9511. Also, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Radio Rehab Dana, D-A-Y-N-A. And, and also, if you if this is the first time you've heard us, we have many episodes before this. Yeah. So please go back and listen to them all. And if you're an addict, they pertain to you. <laughs> we also have entertainment episodes because we are both radio people who have worked in radio. So, you know, I've interviewed Conan O'Brien, movie directors, Asif Kapadia, who directed Amy, which also happened to be about addiction. So, yeah, check out all the episodes. But most importantly, check this one out because it's awesome. It's a great conversation with Noah Levine. I'm here in studio today with author Noah Levine, author of Dharma Punks and Against the Stream, among other things. If you would like to write in with questions, it's Radio Rehab at GoToProductions.com. That's G-O-T-O Productions.com. Phone number is 415-496-9511. You can text or email on the Facebook, the Instagram, and the Twitter. It's at Radio Rehab. Dana. So thank you so much for coming in. This is really awesome. I have a lot of friends who do a different version of the quote-unquote norm, like 12-step recovery. They do it in a Buddhist way. And that's what I found very interesting. So the first thing is my mom tried to get me to read your book years and years and years ago. Because she opened Dharma Punks and she thought it reminded it reminded her of me, like with my anger, my punk rockness, like all the stuff from growing up. And I really I wouldn't pick up the book because she told me to read it. And then finally I did read it and I got what she was saying. We have very similar backgrounds, and I'm very interested to know how you became Buddha how you became spiritual. Right. Well, of course, um out of desperation, like like most changes in lives. Um, uh, you know, I grew up with Buddhists. My dad was a Buddhist and my, you know, my mom. And like, I grew up in that scene. Ram Dass was like around and Jack Kornfield. And, like I grew up in the middle of that sort of first generation of spiritual teachers. And, um, and I thought it was just hippie bullshit, like didn't apply to me. I was an angry punk rocker. I was going to change the world through anarchy and self-destruction. I was going to kill myself at the world. <laughs> and, and became a drug addict and a felon and incarcerated. And then at some point, my father said, do you want to try meditation? And so for me, and it was the same time that I realized I was an addict and I got into recovery, 1988. And um, so my, my recovery, my process of establishing and maintaining abstinence and starting to practice meditation coincided. And so it was together. And because, you know, I went to meetings. I started getting sent to 12-step meetings when I was like 13 years old because I got arrested a lot as a kid. Right. And they would say, you know, go get your court card signed and go to the drug diversion counseling classes. And to me, the 12-steps were some loosely Christian adult bullshit that I didn't want to have anything to do with. Yeah, they looked like that to me at first, too. Looked, you know, yeah. To me, it was just like, they're adults, they're talking about God, I don't want to have anything yeah, to do with them. That's exactly, there's, yeah, that's exactly what it looked like to me. But um, meditation was this practical thing, even though I associated it with hippies, and I felt so embarrassed to meditate, because meditation was like joining the fucking hippies who were my enemy, and I was like, yeah. my life has got, like, smoking crack, shooting dope, committing felonies, I didn't feel that bad about. 
But when I started <laughs> meditating, I felt so ashamed. I can totally relate. Like, I wouldn't want my friends to know I meditate, it was but like they the can know about my past. the least cool thing that I could be doing. But it was practical. There was this sort of experience. I think when I started meditating the first time in my life, I realized I don't have to obey my mind. And it's my mind that's saying drink, use, steal, fight, hurt yourself, hurt others. All of that is, comes in thoughts. And then I was given the simple mindfulness technique it's, that said pay attention to your breath and ignore your thinking. You don't have to stop your mind, but stop paying attention to it and stop obeying it and come back to your breath over and over and over. So I'm sitting in a juvenile hall cell, and I'm trying to do that, and I'm not doing it very well. I'm not good at meditating, but I got, oh, I can disengage from the thinking mind and come into the sensations in the present moment. And that in itself, it felt like, oh, this is practical. I got myself into all of this trouble and this addiction. I can maybe get myself out if I do the proper actions. How, though? How do you ignore your mind? I mean, for me, I always feel like, I'm like 10 feet in to going off on something before I realize I'm doing it. And then it's like, then I have to go back and apologize. And then I have to try to control my mind. But how do you, how can you ignore your thoughts? So um, I don't know if this is too technical, but uh, as human beings, we have consciousness. We have six sort of sensations, six sense doors. We have the mind, which includes the thinking mind and emotions, and there's consciousness in the mind. And then there's hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, and the rest of the sensations in the body. So the sense doors. Now, usually our attention, our consciousness is in our mind. We're in the future, we're in the past, we're planning, we're remembering, we're being creative, whatever. And that, that's just where we're placing our consciousness. But like even right now, you could place your consciousness on the pen in your hand and what it feels like touching your leg. And drop out of your mind and just into the physical sensation of the body. And when you do that and you put your full attention to the sensation of breathing in or your body in the chair, your foot on the ground, or, you know, the listeners, you know, sitting in their car or their home or whatever, if you just bring your attention into the body, almost like we do in yoga, except for you don't have to be stretching just to say I'm going to bring mindfulness into my physical sensations. I'm going to let my mental activity, I'm conscious of it, but I'm not really paying attention to it. I'm not trying to stop it, but I'm letting it be in the background and I'm shifting my attention to the uh, another chosen object like the breath or sensations in the body. Is that like does that what being present is about? Well, it's mindfulness of the body. Right. So mindfulness of the body will allow us to break our uh, identification with what's happening in the mind. Now, so often, people think meditation is stopping your mind. That's what I thought. I thought it was making your mind quiet. Now, eventually, in meditation, sometimes your mind does become quiet, but the first step isn't making your mind quiet. It's breaking your addiction to your mind, right? Like, we're strung out on thinking, and we're so identified with it, and we're, you know, not only do we have drinking problems, we have thinking problems where we're obeying, yeah. you know, and it was the mind that used to tell us to drink, and we obeyed it. Now when the mind tells us to drink or use, we do something else about it. Some people pray, some people be of service. What I found works best is actually bringing mindfulness into the body. Now I could go on and on about how meditation works. Is that enough or do you want me to keep going? Because I'm happy to keep going. Okay, a little more. A little more specifically because I've never, like meditation has always been the thing I suck at the most. 
like I, you know, my friends who know I'm doing this interview, they're like, you're going to meditate tonight because you said you're leading a guided meditation or something tonight. So I said, I will try it because I want to try it. I need to try new things. You know, my friends were all like, you, you're going to meditate? Because I was telling you earlier, there's an 11 step meeting I go to and there's five minutes of meditation in it. And by the end, I'm like, this meeting is like three hours long. You know, when everybody opens their eyes, it's only an hour long, right. you know, but five minutes of meditation, but it's so difficult for me. And I do, I think I thrive on chaos a little bit. I, I I imagine just having known you for ten minutes, I believe that you thrive on <laughs> chaos. I totally believe that, and um, it's much harder to meditate when you don't have instructions, when you don't want to know what you're doing, and especially if you're bringing that unrealistic idea that meditation is about stopping your mind. So it makes it really difficult because then you sit there and you feel like a failure. But when you have the instructions, and so the way that we tend to teach, there's different kinds of meditation, but mindfulness uh, as a core Buddhist tenant. Um, we teach, bring your attention to your breath and body, ignore your mind. Every time your attention goes back into thinking about the future or past, bring your attention back to the body. And so you might be sitting there for 20 minutes and have to bring your attention back a thousand times. But you're, each time you come back, like I had that experience in that cell, you see, oh, I can disengage. My mind can be thinking about you know, whatever future plan, hope, you know, desire, or whatever past resentment, whatever, and I can disengage from that thought. I can stop paying attention to it. I can redirect my attention into the body. So that's the first foundation of mindfulness. Then the second foundation is, is what I'm experiencing pleasant, unpleasant, or, or neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Now this is core, and this is what meditation is really about. Once we're present, we get, we get to start seeing how our habitual reactive tendencies to pleasure is clinging, is craving, is what we could call addiction to pleasure. Right. And, and our habitual reactive tendency to pain is aversion. I want to get rid of it, suppress it, ignore it, medicate it, do something to get, you know, yeah, get rid of it. Yeah, make it stop. Make it stop. Replace it with something pleasant. Right. So we start to see that in mindfulness. Here's, here's pleasure. Here's my relationship to it. And that, see how much stress, how much fear, how much suffering, how much of that shit was why we were addicts in the first place. Yeah. And then we start to develop a healthy and wise relationship and say, okay, what pleasure really is calling for is non-attached appreciation. All of the pleasant thoughts, feelings, sensations, experiences, whatever we're experiencing, it's all impermanent. It's all changing. We can't hold on to anything. We couldn't get high and stay high. We right. all we all tried. Yeah. We all tried that. Yeah. But being high is impermanent. So it's this repetitive trying to replace that pleasant high and avoid those pains that causes all of the stress, fear, suffering in our life. So meditation says turn towards it. See it clearly. It's impermanent. Stop clinging. Practice letting go. And you can't do it unless you're mindful. You can't think your way to non-attachment. But through meditation, you come back to the breath, back to the body. You see it's impermanent. And then you start this process of letting go or letting impermanence be. And you also develop compassion for pain. You sit still for that five minutes or 10 or 20. or th You start sitting still and you get uncomfortable. And you say, oh, my knee hurts, my ass hurts, my back hurts. <laughs> right. What's my relationship to pain? Oh, I'm not very good at tolerating it. And I've been running from it my whole life. For addicts, especially, I think this is true for everyone, but for addicts, especially, if we can't learn to be uncomfortable, there's no way we're going to fucking stay clean. Right. We're just not going to stay clean if we can't learn to be uncomfortable. Because that's what we used to do. We used to relapse. We used to use every time we were uncomfortable. And sometimes even when we were very comfortable, just to make it better. Right. So meditation teaches us, you know, if you learn to sit still, learn to be uncomfortable, even if it's a loud mind that's uncomfortable or an uncomfortable body or difficult emotions that are arising, 
then you learn to meet those unpleasant experiences. This is the second foundation with compassion. You start to, first we learn to tolerate pain. Then we learn to care about it slowly and have some mercy and some compassion for being uncomfortable and realizing this is the human condition. I have a nervous system. I have a sensitive heart. I have an, a, a psychology that experiences all of these painful memories and thoughts. And I would say almost all addicts have trauma in their past. Yeah, And so for that, sure. that's coming up. And so without mindfulness, then what do we do with that trauma? We run from it. The 12 steps are great on one level where they say be of service. If you're having a feeling, if you're, you know, go help someone else. That avoidance technique is quite good. I like it as a suggestion for when people are brand new. But in the long run, how often do we see addicts who spend their whole life avoiding their pain right. by helping others? That's what I always think rather when they than say turning get into towards it. Yeah. Because what about what's what? What about what you're feeling? Exactly. You need to learn a healthy and wise and compassionate relationship to what you're feeling. So then the third foundation. So first foundation, mindfulness of the body in the body. Second foundation, how does it feel? Third foundation, stop ignoring your mind. Now that you've broken your addiction to thinking, turn your attention as an observer on the process of thoughts arising and passing. See, turn towards your mind and look at, okay, this is just lust. This is just fear. This is just anger. And become intimate and aware of the, the internal mind. And through doing that, and even through the first foundation, when we start to try to ignore our mind, or like for you, you go to that 11-step meeting, you sit down, you tell your mind, shut the fuck up. Right, yeah. Am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you tell your mind, shut up. Right. And your mind says, fuck you. I'm going to plan. I'm going to remember. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to judge I'm gonna everybody here. I'm going to have fantasy here. fights with people I'm, I'm going to compare myself. I'm going to open my eyes and say they're all good and I'm bad. Right? Like your mind is just going to do that all by itself, but it's not you. You're not volitionally having those thoughts. So in the third foundation of mindfulness, when you're meditating, you turn towards and you see, oh, I have this addict mind. I have this mind that does whatever it wants. And, I have, and there's volitional and non-volitional thoughts. You can think of the image of when you're watching your mind like bubbles. And they're a memory bubble and a plan bubble and a judgment bubble and a fear bubble. And in mindfulness, you can just observe it. And then sometimes you see I enter into the bubble and I float off with it. Now I'm in the plan. I'm planning. I'm feeding it. I'm proliferating this thought. All right. I'm way in the future and I completely lose present time awareness. I'm no right. longer mindful. But you spend an hour future tripping I'm, on something. I'm tripping. You're gone. I completely yeah. lost everything that was happening. I wasn't even feeling my body anymore. I wasn't even here. So that's the third foundation. So that's part of why you know and you need to know that and all i think all addicts need to know this so that they have the instructions of how to actually train their mind like the 11th step they say meditate improve your conscious contact but they don't tell us how and of course the 12 steps are so, so theistic that whole meditate to improve your conscious contact with god whatever that means yeah where mindfulness is non-theistic it's very practical psychology and it's about approving your conscious relationship to your own emotions to your own reality moment to moment without any ideas of divine intervention right just personal responsibility how do i relate to pain if i don't change my relationship to pain i'm not going to stay clean how do i relate to pleasure if I don't change my relationship to pleasure, I'm not going to stay clean because that's why I'm an addict in the per first place. Yeah. I'm addicted to avoiding pain and chasing pleasure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, feelings. Feelings. I'm addicted. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Who wants that shit? Exactly. Oh, I know. Well, if so if you practice this, let's say for an hour every day, 
Will that do any? Well, okay, an hour is too much for me. Okay, like, what if I practice it for like 15 minutes every morning? Will I ever? And then eventually, like, work up. Will I ever get anywhere? You will totally get somewhere. And and I think that that's important. Like you said, people say, "Oh, you you know, you're gonna meditate," yeah. or <laughs> or you have had that idea. I can't meditate. And so many people have that. I like to say, like, somebody recently was telling me this. That he was telling me about how he flies airplanes for fun. And then the conversation turned to meditation, and he said, but I can't meditate. I said, that's interesting. I can't fly an airplane. How long did it take you to learn how to fly an airplane? He's like, oh, well, I had to take this class and that class, and then I did the simulator. And, you know, he spent a year learning how to fly an airplane. I said, you know, if you spend a year learning how to meditate, in a year you'll know how to meditate. Like anything, or sometimes I don't know why I use like a, the violin or a musical. I can't play the violin. But if I took a fucking violin and, and practiced it for 20 minutes every day, I bet I'd be able to play it in a year or two. Yeah. Like anything else, nobody can meditate. And, you know, there's lots of people that say, like, oh, I just naturally I sit there and I'm so peaceful. Yeah, Mo they do. Mostly they're lying. Okay. Most people that say <laughs> that are just full of shit and they're lying. Or they're just off in some fantasy. They're not actually present here. They're right. just off in some fantasy world avoiding. Doing what your mind naturally does anyway. Right. Yes. That's They're just doing that. They're, they're thinking. Oh, <laughs> they're not thinking. <laughs> which is not meditating. Right. So, because that's what I do, and I know it's not meditating. <laughs> right. And we're, you know, so addicted to that process, and it's natural, and that's just what human beings do. This is why Buddhism is so radical, and why it's such a good treatment for addiction, because it turns us towards the human condition, not to avoid it, not to escape from it, but to develop wisdom and compassion towards it. And then for addicts who have no wisdom about it, or right, we wouldn't have become so addicted in the right. first place, it trains us, it gives us these, these tools. Anybody can do it. We have a treatment center. We, we start people um, meditating in detox in their first 30 days. And we, we, they come to 90 days of treatment. They meditate three times a day, every day. And Really? Know, and other treatment centers are like, newcomers, brand new people can't meditate. I'm like, bullshit. I've been doing it for years. They can meditate if you give them the instructions. You don't have to sit still and be zen. You just have to bring your attention back to your breath, back into your body, over and over in the beginning. And anybody can do that. And these are treatment centers? Yeah, and I have yeah, in Los Angeles we have a refuge recovery treatment center where we have detox, residential, sober living, outpatient, the whole thing. Only in Los in Los Angeles though. In Los Angeles, but then refuge recovery meetings, so we didn't quite get there, but um, out of my own recovery I did 12 steps. I was practicing Buddhism. Buddhism made a lot more sense to me, but I didn't like the Buddhists. <laughs> they were my parents friends right. not my culture not my generation um and and i liked the 12 steps i didn't like the philosophy way too christian too much god higher power powerless defects all of that stuff i didn't make sense to me buddhism made sense but the people in the 12 steps what that i met in, in aa and na it was like those were my people those were the people that i used to shoot dope with right. like i loved those people so for a long time, I had this split of my Buddhist practice and my recovery community. And I worked the 12 steps to the best of my ability. You read Dharma Punks. I talk about my own sort of spiritual um, exploration with it. You know, I was convinced early on I needed a spiritual solution. I wasn't convinced that it was a Judeo-Christian, theistic, 12-step model of spirituality. And I was interested in Hinduism and Buddhism and Sufism. And, you know, I was looking more to the East than to this Bible-based 12-step method. Right. Um, 
but I worked the steps to the best of my ability, and I benefited from them. And I'm I'm a fan. And I you know even though I'm openly critical, I'm also openly critical of some stuff about Buddhism. So I'm you know yeah. e- equal opportunity critic. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. There's things not about, picking on anyone particular. I'm, I'm thing. not trying to just pick on the twelve steps. And twelve step people can get so. Uh, fundamentalist, and it's the only way. Yeah, and it's, it's been working since 1935. It's just not the only way. I know. And in my opinion, there's actually better ways. And and for, in my direct experience, Buddhism works way better than prayer. The the practical mindfulness based meditation training your mind works way better than asking for a mystical force to remove your shortcomings from you. Way How, better. So it was specifically on shortcomings and resentments. How does training your mind, how does training your mind work better than like the 12 step approach to that in your, in your opinion? Because through mindfulness, when you, when you turn your attention towards it, you start to see clearly, oh, this is my, what they call defects of character, what we call the hindrances or the calaces, the things that are keeping us in suffering, the afflictive emotions. And you see it clearly and you start to see, oh, they're impermanent. I don't have to believe them. I don't just like my mind. I don't have to identify. I don't have to take the bait and get, oh, it's just anger arising or it's fear or jealousy or it's you have a relationship to it rather than coming from it, rather than embodying it or incarnating as hatred. You're mindful of, oh, I have a resentment. And then you also have the practical antidote. Oh, forgiveness. I know how to be compassionate. I learned this forgiveness meditation. And then you start replacing the resentment with forgiveness. And you start saying like, oh, why? Oh, I'm, there's this pain. And that that's why I'm feeling jealous or envy or uh, um, lust or whatever it is. I'm trying to avoid something. I'm trying to satisfy something. And you have a wise relationship to it and a meditative technique that allows you to directly address what they call shortcomings. So, and I think that that's important because I talked a lot about mindfulness. But along with mindfulness, you're also learning compassion. You're also learning loving kindness and forgiveness. You're also learning non-attached appreciation and equanimity. And so there's all of these techniques that we that are very practical mind and heart trainings that allow you to relate directly to what we call, you know, defects or shortcomings, which are really just the human condition. And for the addict, they're the human condition on steroids, right? On addiction. Right. You know? Yeah, steroids we're, for sure. My own feeling is that addicts aren't that special, aren't that different, aren't that unique, that we're all just human beings experiencing the human range of emotions. And we have trauma usually that make, that amplifies them, that makes them a bit stronger. And so we are in desperate need of a spiritual solution, but a practical one, not a, not a make-believe, not a fantasy of like this is magically going to be removed from you, but a, a, a responsibility to say it's my responsibility to change my relationship to my mind, to my feelings, to my body, to this process of aging, whatever it is that I'm suffering about. Is there a specific forgiveness meditation? There, there is. There is? Yeah. So forgiveness meditation. So let me, before, let me come back to refuge for a moment. Okay. Um, because I had all of that, you know, Buddhist practice, 12-step. And I started teaching Buddhism. My teacher, Jack Cornfield and Ajahn Amar, all my teachers, they said, we want you to start teaching. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I could teach addicts. I said, but I want to I want to open this to everyone. I want to open this to the punk rock kids and the you know my generation who aren't addicts but are suffering and and want to learn Buddhism. So for a long time, I didn't really mix the two. But as I, I started teaching in San Francisco, probably almost twenty years ago, late mid nineties, and um, half of the people that showed up were in recovery, half of them weren't. 
So it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I said, oh, there's so many people, and we have a meditation center in San Francisco against the stream, in Los Angeles against the stream meditation, New York, Nashville. We have groups all over the country. Half of the people are in recovery. And so about 10 years ago, I said, I need to create a Buddhist recovery, a specific way that we can apply Buddhism for recovery. So Refuge Recovery came out of that. And the book came out two years ago, June 10th, um, 14. And there was about 10 Buddhist recovery meetings at that time. There's dozens of Dharma punks groups and against the stream groups, which are mixed, some addicts, some not. But Refuge Recovery just for addicts, just to treat addiction using core Buddhist techniques and philosophy. Has specific meetings? Has specific meetings. That are completely separate completely from the Dharma punks? Completely separate from Dharma punks or against the stream. Okay. So refuge recovery, there's about 10 meetings two, uh, two years ago. Now there's over 200 refuge recovery meetings. They're all over. There's some up by you in Sonoma. They're on the East Coast, West, in the South. Birmingham, Alabama. South? Has, really? Birmingham, <laughs> Alabama has five refuge recovery meetings a week. Oklahoma City, Nashville, Atlanta, Florida. Like ref, The Buddhist recovery is booming in the South because they're so sick of the Judeo-Christian oppression that the 12 steps is so like. Right. Even though 12 steps are so open minded and that it's like open minded. It was still based on the Oxford group. So many people that are just traumatized by God that they don't want to hear about it. And so Buddhism doesn't talk about God. So it fits so well for all of these addicts that don't want to hear about you're powerless and only God can, you know, restore you to sanity. And it's like, I'm fucking crazy and I'm willing to do the work to restore myself to sanity. I'm not waiting for a miracle here. Right. That might never happen. Yes. So refuge recovery, um, we had a question from a listener actually about refuge recovery. Um, She wanted to know, and I don't understand this question, but I hope you will. How might someone find refuge recovery without relapsing? So that's a great question. Thank you, listener. Um, So refuge recovery, I don't know what the percentages are. But there's probably as many people, you know, crossing over from the 12 steps to refuge recovery with double digit sobriety. So people are going to meetings with 20 years clean and saying, you know, I I never really learned how to forgive myself in the 12 steps. And here's a program that's going to teach me how to really forgive myself. And I know you want to hear about forgiveness and I'll come back. (laughs) And, um, you know, here's a program that's going to really teach me how to meditate. And here's a program that's going to, you know, that just people are using it as sort of 2.0 recovery. Um, So maybe half of the people that are coming to refuge already have established recovery. Then, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that are have relapsed and are coming back or are just getting clean or all these people like in our treatment center, all these people that could never get clean because they were just told the 12 steps is the only way. And they're finding us and they're saying, finally, somebody who's not telling us the 12 steps are the only way. Now, I do want to pause and say I'm not against the 12 steps. If that works for you, if you believe in God and that resonates with you, beautiful. But there's so many of us that that didn't resonate with and it didn't work for very well. Um, and, th- and that this is where Buddhism is a, a missing piece of the recovery puzzle in this world. And it's why so many meetings are starting. Um, one of the things that I wasn't aware of, so there's a lot of people that are, I'd say 60% of people that are doing refuge recovery are also doing 12-step, and they're doing both. They're not choosing one or the other. People are doing both 12 steps and refuge. Maybe 30 or 40% of the people are just doing refuge, and that's their only program, and they've got years clean. Uh, using the Buddhist method and not using the 12 steps at all and they're being of service and they're you know fully engaged in a life of recovery there not, is service in in yep 
Refugee you'll, you'll find um, pretty much all of the principles of service and compassion and community. We call it sangha rather than fellowship. There's a, a sponsorship process in refuge recovery that's similar to the 12 steps. Well, we call it mentorship rather than – I don't want to use the same term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have a Buddhist mentor, a kind of refuge recovery mentor. There's inventories. There's daily meditation. So – a lot of people are doing both. Then maybe 30 40% are just doing refuge. Now, something that's happening a lot in refuge recovery that I wasn't aware of when I created it is that people who are totally anti-12 steps are coming into refuge recovery saying, okay, finally something I can get my mind around. And then through getting their mind around a Buddhist approach to addiction, they're saying, oh, now I can go to the 12 steps. Now that I have a philosophy that makes sense to me, I can go and be part of fellowship and not have to believe everything that's being told to me there. And it actually makes me very comfortable going to 12 steps and being part of those fellowships as well. And so it's actually a bridge sort of back into the 12-step communities for a lot of addicts. Oh, that makes it. That's that really makes sense to me that yeah. they would come into twelve step recovery with a foundation, because for me it was always coming into twelve step recovery with no foundation, and I was angry at God. Um, another question I have: Do you do you feel like okay? Is it possible to um, somehow through Buddha Buddhism help the fact that you think you were born angry or born with a grudge? Sure. Yeah. And I think that the more, you know, I mean, Buddhism addresses reincarnation. And, you know, so there's the possibility that you were born with those kind of tendencies. Um, often I would take more of a psychological uh, look at early childhood trauma that it wasn't actually born with. But that well, I mean, like during birth, happened. like something that happened right when you were born. So, yeah. I mean, like from from since you were an yeah, infant. Yeah, kind of birth yeah. trauma. And, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. The, you develop compassion for the pain, right? Anger is always covering pain, yeah. right? So you're not angry from birth. You are in pain and you're reacting to your pain with anger. And so through learning compassion, you learn to directly um, go beneath the anger and be vulnerable and feel the pain and care about it and learn to tend to and, and have a friendly, merciful, compassionate relationship to your pain. And then also forgiveness towards yourself and the others that caused you pain. So forgiveness, you asked about forgiveness. Forgiveness is done in three categories. Asking for forgiveness, like making amends. Mm -hmm. Ask for forgiveness to all the people. And you do that in a meditation where in your mind, in your heart, you say, please forgive me for all of the ways that I may have caused you harm, whether it was intentional or unintentional, whether it's through my words or my actions, whether it was anger, fear, craving, whatever it was that caused you harm, please forgive me. And so imagine doing that on a ninth step, like for your list, rather than just going nervously and making amends, right. of actually spending a, a month or so meditating on asking that person for forgiveness and really bringing them into your heart and training your mind in that way. So the first category, and then it also put us, puts us into the humility of, oh, I've caused a lot of harm in my life. Why? I was confused. I was hurt. I was addicted. And we, we can see. And then when we start to go to the second category of, of offering forgiveness to the people that hurt us, there's a little bit more empathy for why did these people hurt me? Oh, they were confused. They were in pain. They were at, you know, whatever their, their suffering that spilled out onto us. It makes it easier to forgive when you have compassion 
for why they may have harmed us or why they're fucking monsters in the world, Donald Trump. You right. know what I mean? Right. Like, you, like when you're when you're kind of looking at the, the monsters in the world that are so confused and like, I fucking hate those people. You, you can get some compassion for like, look, imagine how much suffering they must be in. Imagine how painful it must be to be that ignorant, to be that confused, to be that delusional in the world. And, you, and when you can have some empathy and some compassion, then you can forgive the actor. And what we do is we separate the actor from the action. So some actions are unforgivable. Rape, unforgivable. Never going to forgive rape. Right. But the rapist who was sexually abused themselves, who was, you know, so, in so much suffering and so much whatever, that their, their, their desire they couldn't hold and they spilled it out, you can have some compassion for their pain and perhaps some forgiveness for that confused, suffering, ignorant bastard. But you're not forgiving the rape. Right. You're not forgiving the ignorance. Right. Right. And so that way it makes forgiving possible. We're still with me? Yes, totally. Third uh, third uh, category of forgiveness is self-forgiveness. So asking for forgiveness, offering forgiveness, and then forgiving yourself. Now, um, before I come to for self-forgiveness, let me say that... Uh, boundaries are important. Sometimes when we forgive someone that's hurt us, we think, does that mean I'm not allowed, like, I have to reconcile? Yeah. I have to let them back into my life? Like, you know, because sometimes we're holding anger and resentment to protect ourselves. Yeah. Like, stay away. I hate you. Stay away from me. And if I don't hate you anymore, does that mean, like, we have to be homies? Like, I don't want to be your homie. I don't don't ever want to fucking see you again. But I don't want to hold the hatred. I don't want to suffer about how you harmed me. Right. So forgiveness is for us to free ourselves from the pain of hatred. But it can come with a really good boundary that says, I'm going to let you back into my heart. I'm going to have compassion for your deep ignorance and confusion and suffering. I'm going to forgive you, but I'm going to have a good boundary. You're never going to be in my life again. We're not, you know, reconciling. And the forgiveness that I'm doing is for my karmic purification, is for my freedom, not so that we can reestablish contact. Right, because like they say about holding under resentment is like you hate somebody else, so you're drinking poison <laughs> to kill them. Because drinking poison, yeah. yes, yes, exactly. Because so it just the, poisons you. So much of forgiveness is for ourselves. Now, when it comes to self-forgiveness, we do the same phrase as you say to yourself, Dana, I forgive you as much as I can in this moment for all of the judging thoughts, for the fear, for the difficult emotions, for the years of addiction, for all of that stuff that we're... And you say, I forgive you as much as I can. And I, I like that as much as I can in this moment so it's not a lie. I was just going to say, what does that mean? That means well, just like just what I'm capable of right because, now? Because if you just turn to yourself and let that like fake affirmation right. style, you say, I forgive you. Like I'm good you. enough, I'm smart And then enough. your mind, you know, you're just like, that's bullshit. I can, I can say right. I forgive. It's empty totally. words. I don't totally forgive myself. I'm in the process. I aspire to forgiveness. It's my intention to forgive. So that's why we put in that term as much as I can in this moment. Because eventually you say that to yourself every day for the next six months, you might see, oh, actually, I'm starting to forgive myself more. I'm actually creating neuro pathways of self-forgiveness. That's what I was going to ask. Yes. If you repeat it, does it, it, so if you repeat something, like a mantra yeah. kind of, yes. is a mantra Buddhist? Could be. Okay, so if you repeat something like a mantra, it, it opens up neuro pathways in your head and it makes it. Yeah, from a neuroscience perspective, anything um, that we think uh, creates a pathway. And so if we've been thinking negative thoughts, we have all of these negative habits in our mind. 
when you in a meditation, you're also, you know, firing these neurons together, they're wiring together, and you're saying, I forgive you, or may I have compassion for my pain, uh, whatever you're saying, and it starts to create a groove in your mind, and a mind habit of compassion and forgiveness. And it's part of why meditation isn't so mystical, and so magical, and maybe even not even spiritual. It's actually psychological, scientifically proven uh, mind training techniques that will allow you to change your relationship to pain and pleasure and the past, present, and future. It's very practical. And um, so, yeah, it's not so woo-woo. People think yeah, meditation it's not. is like woo-woo. Exactly. But it, it's, it's actually very uh, I like grounded. science. Yes. I like that. I yeah. like science. And I think a lot of people have a scientific mind. I like something that's tangible that you can just do, like an exercise. Because I know when I was younger and I came into 12-step recovery, I was like, okay, no, 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 just tell me what I can do right now. I need an exercise. Like, I need something. And it was all, everything was kind of a saying or a cliche or like a quote or like a bumper sticker. You know, and I felt like none of it applied to me. And that's why I had a problem. Well, I mean, for many reasons I had a problem. But it took me so long to be able to get sober. Yeah. Because it, it made more sense to be out there, like, you know running and using and and being rageful and all that stuff avoiding avoid totally avoiding chasing stuff but how do you is is it like how long does it take you to learn all this stuff because i'm looking at you and it's like you're so calm and you know all of this stuff about how to meditate you have all of these answers how long does that take um being an instant gratification kind of person so let me say two things one is um, your listener that was asking about, do I have to relapse to uh-huh. go into refuge recovery? So I don't know where they live, but there's refuge recovery meetings in San Francisco, all over the Bay Area, East Bay. There's refuge recovery. So at refugerecovery.org, all of the okay, meetings good. will be listed. Um, the this person lives th- in Boston. In Boston, there's refuge recovery meetings in Boston for sure. So uh, all over Massachusetts, there. So in New York, like there's you know there's meetings in most you know major metropolitan places. So people will find it. So your question about instant gratification. The Dalai Lama was once asked this question. He said, "How you know, somebody asked him, how long does it take? And what's the easiest, fastest, cheapest way to get enlightened? <laughs> Which is like, totally your question. Dana totally. wants to know what's the easy, totally. fast, what's a quick fix? Um, and he actually got very frustrated at the question. I don't feel so frustrated, but I think it's a very natural and calm, you know, uh, common question. He got mad and he said, you know, this is the problem. This is why people won't get – oh, this is why, you know, America is such a fucking mess and, you know, why – you know, because people are, are so impatient. Uh, most good things don't happen quickly. Most, you know, most skills and important changes in life are, are very gradual and slow. He said, uh, commit to, to your meditation practice and only check in on your progress once every decade or so. He said, really, give it 10 years and then – and I encourage you to do this. I encourage everyone to do this. Maybe 10 years is too long, but – um, to, to meditate every day, 15, start with 10, 15 minutes, just go to a place where you're sitting for a minimum of 30 minutes a day, and then look back on your life in a year. Look back, your, back on your life in five years and see, oh, I have more compassion than I used to. I'm more patient. I can sit in uncomfortable emotions. I, you know, I've been sober. I don't drink. You know, I meditate every day and I, I haven't relapsed. Even when my mind has encouraged me to, you know, sabotage my life i've had a relationship to those thoughts and i said you know thanks for sharing i'm not going to do that yeah. because i'm mindful of my thoughts and you look back in a decade and you say oh well, shit i've made a lot of progress 
I'm 28 years clean, you know, so I'm, I'm coming up on that third decade of my meditation practice. I've made a lot of progress over the last 30 years of meditating. I'm not perfect. I'm not enlightened. My, you know, I still have difficult emotions and get attached. And I had a really shitty year. My dad died. I got divorced. It was this crazy year last year. All of life keeps happening, but I have a mindful relationship to it. Yeah, right. And so uh, what our expectations are is important. And then our our um, follow through of how much time, how much energy am I going to put into this? I think it's so funny that addicts, all of us, we're all like this, where uh, we want the quick fix and we're so fucking lazy. But for drugs, like we would do anything for oh alcohol my God, and drugs. Anything. I used to work so hard at being a junkie. Oh, God. But I don't want to work that hard at being clean. I want cl being clean to be easy. Yeah. And so, like, I always try to reframe that and say, you know, how much time did you spend getting loaded? Like, are you willing to spend a part of that time, you know, training your mind, being of service, being compassionate, learning to love yourself, to forgive yourself? So uh, it does take time. Some people and, and then partially I'm avoiding the answer because uh, I don't know. You might be a really quick learner. You might start meditating every day, and in a couple months, you'll see, like, wow, huge results. Or for some people, it might take a couple years to see really, really big results. For me, I can only, right, we only really know our own experience. For me, I immediately found the benefits of mindfulness and saw, oh, I can ignore my mind. I can come back to my breath. That is a, a salvation. That's a refuge to not be in my mind and come back to my breath. Even though those thoughts are in the background, mindfulness made sense. I started doing forgiveness and my mind, I had so much self-hatred and so much, uh, you know, resentments that when I started doing forgiveness, it took me years for it to work. I would do forgiveness and I, every day I would say, I forgive you as much as I can. And my mind would say, you're a fucking piece of shit. Keep saying whatever you want. And I'd say, I forgive you as much as I can. I forgive you as much as I can. To yourself? To myself. Okay, self-forgiveness. my, my, my own okay. self-forgiveness. And it took a couple years before I could say, I forgive you as much as I can. And my mind would say, yeah, that's okay. You can forgive, you know. It, it took a while for my mind to accept it. It felt so unsafe. It felt so weak. It felt so vulnerable to be kind to myself that it took a long time to tolerate being vulnerable and kind and compassionate. And so it depends on our karma. It depends on our conditioning. It depends on our trauma. Some people really quickly make deep progress in the meditative path. But for all of us, it's a gradual process. And really, it's about committing to it and, and in integrating it into your life the way you do exercise or the way you do brushing your teeth or, you know, anything else that you do where you're just like, I'm going to make this part of my habit. This is for my mental health, my emotional stability, my recovery. Is there such thing as meditating while doing something else? Could that be like, okay. Like, okay, so yes. say if you go running and yes. you really like, you can only listen to loud music when you run. Yes. Is there any meditative quality to that? Yes. There is? Um, there can be. Oh. But, so in the long run, you start with sitting meditation. And you sit still and you learn to pay attention to your breath and your mind. And then you integrate that mindfulness, present time awareness into all of the activities in your life. 
and you're in the car and you're driving and you're being mindful, present, feeling your hands on the steering wheel and you're in the conversation, you're in conflict and you're being mindful. It feels like this in my body and you're running and you're being mindful. But without a sitting mindfulness practice, without a, a disciplined, what we call formal, you can't, you're sort of tricking yourself to say that my running is meditation. It's not meditation unless you've trained your mind to meditate. So which comes before you're so running the, with the, loud music. The okay. stillness meditation is important. Once you've learned to be still, to sit, to really turn inward without the distractions of the loud music or the movement, then you can incorporate it into every aspect of your life. And the Buddha said, bring, bring, it into every, bring it into your sexuality, bring it into your relationship with money, bring it into your work environment, bring it into every aspect of your life so that you're being, if whatever you're doing, be mindful of what you're doing, how it feels, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So that's how, always what you're asking yourself? Always. Is this pleasant, unpleasant, How or am neutral? I relating to this? How am I relating oh. to this? Because that's what dictates whether we suffer or not. If it's pleasant and you're attached to it, you're suffering. Because it's changing. You're clinging to impermanence. Oh, like I need this. I okay. need it to stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you're in craving. I need it to be different than it is. Or if it's painful and you're pushing it away, you're adding fear and anger on top of the pain. Right. And so the Buddhism, we say, and, and refuge recovery, we say um, you can fully recover. You can you can get enlightened. Now, enlightenment or awakening means you'll just have normal pain, but no hatred of pain. You'll have compassion for it. You'll just have normal oh, pleasure, but okay. your pleasure will still be impermanent. Right. So you'll be kind of OK with it, I guess okay. is what you're saying. Equanimity. Ah. Happy, joyous, free from suffering. That's amazing. Yeah. I, but, I mean, but I think you have to meditate to get there. Oh, I'm sure. So it reminds me of like when I was uh, a kid and I was in rehabs and I would just be so angry about something and they will come out with a stupid chart with faces on it and be like, use a feeling or, you know, and it was like, ah, I couldn't. I was just angry, yeah. you know, but then it would get to angry. And then, of course, later I understood that it all comes from that. I was just hurting a lot. And that's why I was so angry. But so it's like when you said, um, what was it? Pleasure? I'm going to have to write it down. Pleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. unpleasant. Yeah. Is it almost like you're 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 just you're trying to come up with a feeling on the chart to use a well, you could to nail like, it? Is like that even, what it is? Even right now, like you can right now, you can bring your attention in a general way to how this conversation feels. And, you know, you're sort of smiling and it's like, oh, this is sort of pleasant. Like this is a good dialogue. And then you could. On, so on that level, there's a general. Oh, this is a pleasant interaction. And then you can bring your attention into your body and you can say, okay, I can feel my ass in the chair, my arm on the table. And you could bring your attention there and say, oh, that's kind of neutral. Doesn't really. But now um, my legs have been crossed for too long. So now that's getting unpleasant. How am I relating to that, <laughs> you know, sensation in my leg from being crossed? And right. So I want a aversion to that makes me want to uncross my legs or I can bring some tolerance to it. But really conscious, mindfully say, I'm relating. There's this unpleasant sensation. Now that's an un, that's a avoidable unpleasant sensation, so we can avoid it. But what about all of that avoidable or unavoidable um, pain that we experience in life? The breakups, the losses, the stuck in traffic, stress, right? All of that yeah. stuff. What do we do with that? Well, if you've never trained your mind in compassion, you just hate it. <laughs> but if you're paying attention and you've developed a, a different relationship to pain, then you know how to deal with the unavoidables. And that's why meditation, people are like, why would I just sit there and be in pain? In preparation, the answer is in preparation for all of the time where you can't do anything about it. 
you can't uncross your legs to get away from that discomfort of the heartbreak or the loss or the grief or the fucking politics that you can't avoid or whatever it is. I was going to ask you, how does meditation help deal with grief? I lost my father also, and I handled it. I mean, yeah. I mean, not to put labels on anything, but I handled it about as wrong as you possibly could. Right. Just like took off running. Well, grief has its own natural process. Uh, like everything else, it's impermanent and it's painful. And there's a there's a sadness and there's a, you know, there's those stages of grief that we go through, the denial and the anger and the bargaining. Uh, with meditation, you get to be with that impermanent process of grief arriving and passing, arriving and passing, arising and passing. Um, without that, then often we cling to the past and we, ha we stay in that phase of uh, it's wrong, it's unjust. Uh, we take it all very personally. And we have what, what I'd call like a neurotic grief rather than healthy grief. Right, where it's our clinging to the past and our, our rejection of impermanence and reality as it is. Like, we know everyone dies. We know, right, that's just uh, the byproduct of taking birth. You're going to die. We know that. And so through mindfulness, you come more into acceptance of impermanence. Now you still feel sadness, right? Sadness is the healthy and appropriate emotion to loss. But you learn to just tolerate, like, okay, I feel really sad. And I miss that person, and I have those memories of that person. Wow, does that make sense? No, it totally makes sense. It just seems so simple. It is. Well, it's so. It's like it. That's. It seems so. Like yes, that's the right. That is the proper way to do that. That would yeah. be the right way to do that, and that would help. Right. Um, but like you said, you didn't even tell us what you did. But um, what most people do is they run from it. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. But it, but literally, that, like but, left the state. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But when you run from it, it just um, what's that simple saying? That which we resist persists. Like if we that's run good. from it, it chases us. Right? We resist it. Or like wherever you go, there where, you are. Where, yeah, and that that grief actually, if you never, it's calling for your attention. That sadness in your heart around dad dying actually just wants to be felt. Just yeah. wants to be tended to. I so just started run, doing that. Yeah, this if you year. run from it for ten years or however long, then ten years later it's still there. Right. But if you know, if when and it that, seems bigger. It seems bigger. But if when that loss happens, you bring mindfulness and you turn towards it, and you breathe it in, and you cry, and you have the sadness and the waves of it, then actually the process unfolds very naturally, and it doesn't last for decades. Right. Well, because another thing I wanted to ask you about is like adding chemicals when you're going through these, will stunt your growth, right. right? So basically, like, I mean, I didn't start dealing with my dad's death until a year ago. So you can't, you can't do these mindfulness things with an altered mind, right? Well, uh, mostly I would say, right, you can't, you know, you do need to be sober to be mindful. And one of the core tenets of Buddhism for people who want to follow what's called the Eightfold Path is to be drug-free, whether you're an addict or not, to, 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 to abstain. It's oh, the, really? So all Buddhists are sober? All well, Buddhists don't? Um, just as, that you general? Know, <laughs> uh, ideally, yes. The original teachings of the Buddha was if you want to be mindful, don't put anything into your body that blocks mindfulness like drugs and alcohol. Now, um, Buddhism has become something that billions of people ascribe to, and probably only a small percentage of them actually practice complete abstinence from drugs and alcohol, just like Muslims or Christians or, you know, people mm -hmm. who um, also aren't supposed to drink uh, and but do anyways. I guess Christians are allowed to drink. but Right. Well, and Jews are allowed to drink. Yeah, Christians Manish and Jews it. Yeah. Like, yeah. They're allowed to drink. Ceremonially. Yes. Yes. 
But there's, so there is no, there is nothing like that in Buddhism. So in Buddhism, it's uh, total abstinence in the original teachings. But then later, as Buddhism goes to Japan and Japanese, you know, Mahayana, the like Zen, they drink and they justify it by saying what the dude they 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 justify it by saying what the dude actually meant was don't get drunk. Oh, but a couple right. of drinks are okay. Right, 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 right. right. I yeah. love when people reinterpret ancient yeah. things. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the original saying, uh, teaching from the Buddha was, do not put anything in your body that leads to intoxication. And so then they, they put, you know, that leads to, right? Right. Uh, is the original teaching. And then so Mahayana, Tibetan Buddhists, Japanese Buddhists, a lot of Buddhists, uh, even, you know, spirit rock Buddhists, you know, like <laughs> even, even, even my people who don't follow the fifth precept, they say we choose to interpret this as don't put so much into your body that you lose, you know, consciousness, mindfulness. Right. Now, the original teaching was super clearly abstinence. That's what it sounded like. Which is very, it's very supportive for us addicts that need to be abstinent anyways, uh, who say like, yes, I want to be mindful. I want to be present. I want to heal. I want to forgive. I want to come into a loving place in my life. And, you know, drugs and alcohol recreationally don't have any place for that. Right. Yeah. Well, so you were talking about how, um, there are people who are clean and sober, quote unquote, you know, in a 12 step program and then they can come to refuge recovery in, in the, the two. It's not like you have to be one or the other. Right. You can no. be both. No, absolutely not. And the majority of people do both. And the majority of the people, um, you know, find find their way in the 12 steps, even if they're not, you know, they have their own 12 steps are so open minded. You know, it's it's totally theism. It's God. But it's as you understand it. And, mm-hmm. as it, you know, it's, it's so open minded that there's room um, for Buddhists, you know, yeah. and for non-theists and for atheists and agnostics in the 12 steps. Now, um, so most people are doing both. Now, there's a lot of people who just say, like, I don't want that language at all. It doesn't make the powerlessness. That stuff doesn't make sense to me. Uh, mindfulness makes sense to me. You know, kind of compassion, forgiveness, that makes sense to me. And so then there are those people that are just doing refuge. But most people are doing both at this point. But it's also because, um, you know, refuge has only really existed for a couple of years. Now, uh, if, if you know, if, if I had the choice 28 years ago when I got clean um, to do a Buddhist path or a loosely Christian path, I would have chosen a Buddhist path. But I didn't have the choice. If you would have had the choice when you were a teenager in rehab, you know, oh or whenever God, that was, yeah. you know, and they say, hey, you can you you can do the, you know, Christian based 12 steps or you can do the Buddhist based refuge recovery. I would have picked the thing that says refuge in right. it just because it said refuge. refuge. Yeah. And so that's actually happening more and more where treatment centers and people are finding refuge recovery and they're saying, this actually makes more sense to me. And even some of the like fundamentalist 12-step people who are some of my friends um, say, like, well, you have to do the 12 steps. It's the only thing we've ever done, you know. And I say to them, well, what if you had a choice 20 years ago when you got clean uh, between a mindfulness path or a prayer path, what would you have chosen? And almost all of them say, I would have totally chosen a mindfulness path. But I wasn't given the choice, so I was given, you know, so I've been doing this prayer-based path, and um, and now I'm integrating both of them. So that's the major difference, as you see it, between, um, like, 12-step recovery and Buddhism is um, mindfulness versus prayer. Yes. So there is no, so I always kind of felt like Buddhists were praying. Of course, this is completely like I'm talking about like the movie The Golden Child. Like that, that was the extent of my knowledge as a child about Buddhism. But, but so it's the difference between, I guess, listening versus talking. That's what it almost seems like to me. Like prayer no. seems more like you're talking a lot and mindful, or mindfulness seems more like you're listening or you're waiting. Yeah, you're observing, you're training your mind. It's through your own, you know, uh, Buddhism, 
is through your own actions, through your own efforts. There's no um, grace. There's no divine intervention. There's no higher powers removing your desire to drink or your shortcomings or any of that stuff. Like Buddhism doesn't have that philosophy. There's, it's, not, it's a non-theistic philosophy. Buddhism says you have your karma and you're a powerful person and you can change your karma through your own actions in this lifetime. Whether you're an addict or not an addict, you can do that. And I know hundreds and hundreds of atheist Buddhists who have done that and have successful recovery and they never prayed for their recovery. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder what it really is. I wonder like what it boils down to that that thing is because the people who, it's like the people who don't pray. It's like they're getting the same thing out of it as the people who do. It's like as long as there's something, it seems like as long as there's something you're actively doing to be a better person. Could that be it? I or think to that, be better. Although I do think that the practices are super important and whether it's practicing the 12 steps, which do work for people, or it's practicing the mindfulness Buddhist path, which does work for people. Uh, I think that maybe one of the most important things is actually the community is actually the right. relational uh, accountability and support and kindness and uh, empathy that we get from each other. And that it's the fellowship and the, you know, what we call sangha or community that actually works better than anything is that actually we need each other and we need to get honest with each other and we need to tell our stories and we need to support each other and have that accountability and support. I read a great book about addiction as an attachment disorder. And this guy said, you know, uh, and he was studying the 12 steps. And he said the reason the 12 steps work from his perspective, he said that all addicts are actually addicts because we have a hard time attaching and we have trauma around intimacy and relationships. And that's why we, you know, drank and used and all that stuff. He said and the reason that the 12 steps work so well is because of the fellowship and sponsorship, not because of prayer. Not because of the steps at all was his perspective. He was taking a psychological perspective. He said it's because we get together and we tell our truths and we support each other and we show up for each other and we're of service to each other. And it's really the community that works better than the, than the philosophy. That's fascinating because that's how most young people I see do it. It's more about the fact that they're sitting outside chain smoking, drinking Red Bulls all night or coffee, you know, than it is whatever's going on in the meeting. And I do see those kids stay clean. I mean, that's when I was younger, that's what we were doing. We were going to conventions and we were all, you know, yes. fucking around. Like we probably maybe saw the main speaker meeting, but, you know, yes. we weren't going to meet. We were all like, you know. And my sense is that, you know, that works at first uh, a period of time in the right. community. But that actually the practices are also very important. And then you and need something without, deeper. Without changing our relationship to our pain. We're not going to stay clean without developing compassion and love and forgiveness and tolerance and, you know, like how are we going to stay clean? Because life is just too painful to not drink again if you haven't done something about your internalized pain. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think a thing that would scare me the most about it is I would think, oh, my God, if I'm quiet or if I'm being mindful, the pain's going to be so big, it's going to consume me. Yeah. Or what's all this stuff that I've been running from my whole entire life that I don't want to feel? Like the reason, you know, heroin was my drug of choice because somebody described it to me way before I did it. It's funny, I learned about every drug I ended up being addicted to in the rehab that my parents would throw me in. You know, I'd be in there for a different drug and I would say, what does heroin feel like? And I'll never forget this guy said, the room could be burning down and you don't give a fuck. And that's all I wanted was just to not give a fuck. Right. How does but that's mindfulness actually, come into play there? I, I love that question, and I have a few few things to say about it. Um, and part of it is this fear that we have about our pain. 
And, um, you know, I, I don't actually know you, Dana, but my sense is that you're actually kind of a badass <laughs> and that you would do like you, you like you, you have a lot of courage, I think, and that you would kind of like you do this radio show and like you would step out like I, I, and I can just imagine you drinking, <laughs> like getting yourself into all kinds of shit. And I can just, you know, I can just imagine that uh, you're not, you know, um, that the courage that that we need actually, and that the most rebellious thing that like that we can do is actually turn towards our pain, running from our pain, and and kind of going and copping dope and putting ourselves into all of those situations we put ourselves into. That's that's easy. Turning towards our pain, that it is actually hard and it is actually scary, but it's the most rebellious. But it takes courage to do it. And you're somebody, and I think most of us are like we actually have the courage and the the rebelliousness to say, "Fuck this! I'm not going to let my pain rule my life. I'm going to turn towards it." The Tibetans say you invite the demons in for tea. So you turn towards your inner demons with mindfulness and you say, okay, here you are, fear and shame and guilt. And here, here's all of these things. Here's my trauma. And I'm going to be mindful. I'm going to say, oh, welcome back, self-loathing. Welcome back, low self-esteem. And, you know, kind of naming it. And then you take all the power out of it. And you say, oh, they're just fucking feelings. What I'm afraid of are thoughts and feelings. That's all. They're just thoughts and feelings. And I sit there and I'm mindful and like, oh, thoughts and feelings. I was running from thoughts and feelings my whole life. That's what I was running totally from. totally insane. Yeah, it it's totally insane. But so with mindfulness, you, we turn towards it. So there's that courage. Um, and, and it's like a warrior's path. Like, and, you know, like you're Xena, the meditation <laughs> warrior. And you're going to fucking sit there and slay your own demons. Right. Like and you can do that and we can all do that. And, and it's and that's why, like for me, coming from the punk scene of like I've been wanting to go against the stream and against society and yeah. against the causes of suffering since I was a, since I heard the Sex Pistols in 1979. Yeah. I was like, yes, this is the music of my frustration. What do I do about it? Oh, in meditation, I get to actually do something about it. So the courage to do it. Now, there was a second part. I think I lost the train. Um, uh, what was the second part of the question? I think I lost the train of thought on it. Second part of the question would be how, you, about how to do it, the courage. How? Uh, anyways, let's. Let, I, for, I forget it too. We'll yeah. move forward. We'll come back to it. Yeah, we'll come back to it. I don't I know. I my brain's it. been fried from drugs. I yes. don't like a lot of times. I know exactly what I'm thinking, and I'm like, oh my god, it's like dementia or something. But no, I did want to say like that's one thing that attracted me to this whole thing is like ever I see meditation, I'm immediately like, oh, you know, like my stomach growls. But then you wrote, you posted something that says meditate and destroy. And I was like, fuck yeah, I don't know what that is, but I'll do that. Like that just sounds awesome. You know, and I love that term meditate and destroy again, because it fits with me, but it's also like this really traditional, it's actually how the Buddha talked about and maybe that's where the, 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 the thread that I lost is the, the Buddha said, you know, this is about going against greed, against hatred, against delusion, that the norm in this world is Donald Trump and all of his supporters and the, the deep ignorance. And I hope I'm offending a whole bunch of your listeners. I hope so, right too. But, if they're Trump um, supporters, especially, but, you know, like that, that's actually normal to be confused and to be greedy and to be angry and deluded and to not have love and compassion is the norm. It's part of our survival instinct where we love pleasure. We hate pain. We're self-centered by nature, uh, not just addicts, everyone. Yeah. And, um, you know, the Buddha said that this path is, is about rebelling. 
he said, um, uh, ner uh, Naroda Nirvana, Naroda means the destruction. Nirvana um, is, is, you know, awakening, the destruction of the causes of, through meditation, we destroy greed, hatred, and delusion. When you do the mindfulness that we were talking about earlier, and you see, oh, I'm attached, I'm attached, I'm attached, you start letting go, you're destroying greed. You're destroying clinging and craving for pleasure that causes you suffering. When you turn in the mindfulness towards your pain and you see, oh, that I hate pain, I hate pain, I avoid it, and you turn towards it and you slay those demons and you learn to tolerate pain, you say, oh, it's just thoughts and feelings and sensations. I can totally handle this. And you develop compassion for it, then you're destroying hatred of pain. And so meditation allows us to destroy what's causing suffering in our life the self-centeredness and the hatred and the clinging, craving, attachment, greed. Is it kind of by taking the label off of it too? Like it's no longer bad, it just is? It just, it's just is. A it's thing? natural. It's the human condition, right? And right. And, you know, it's, it's our experience of addicts in the human condition. Because we do hate pain and we like to run from Everybody that. Everybody does. Yeah. It's the or survival anything. instinct, you know? It's millions of years of human evolution. We are animals that have fight, flight, freeze, you know, reactions. We hate pain. We want to run from it. We've got these big neocortexes uh, in our in our brains that allow us to kind of have consciousness and self-awareness and ideas and creativity. One of my favorite teachers, Wes Nisker, who's a Bay Area teacher, he said, you know, we develop these human brains. And theorists like to say that 90% um, of what we do with our neocortex is make excuses for the uh, brainstem fight or flight technique, you know, like uh -huh. eat, fuck, kill, which right, our right. mind is constantly doing. Yeah. And then, you know, we, <laughs> we make philosophy and we create religions about why do human beings have these thoughts? You know, we create psychologies around it. Um, and so, yeah, through through meditation, we get to destroy ignorance. That's awesome. I love that. I love that. Well, I like destruction. Also, but I like the idea of just like destroying my destroyers, like destroying the things that are destroying me. I have another question that has to do uh, with addiction um, as far as meditation goes. So one time recently I was and I was in one of the crap like the tenderloin or somewhere everything was fine I was normal I was waiting for somebody who went into an art gallery which is placed in a really stupid place like on like Turk and Polk or something and I'm watching the crackheads and I'm like oh that's crazy like, you know because I'm looking at what I used to be and I just had this thought I want to jump out abandon my vehicle give all this stuff away I don't care and just go be a crazy crackhead again and I was like what the fuck how is that even a good thought? I'd be out of money by midnight the way I do drugs. You know, I'd be out of money real quick. And it's like, how is that? But then I was thinking about like Buddhism. Like there must be some way I can just go, yeah, I had that thought because I'm an addict. And that's all it is. Well, Instead of being like, oh, so scared. I was scared of it. I was scared right. to death. Right. Like, how can I be completely sober and normal? And I just had that thought, like, yeah. fuck my car, fuck everything. I'm just gonna go with that guy. Well, yeah. The more the more that you <laughs> meditate, the more you see that your mind has a mind of its own, and it's not personal, and it's not your fault. And that actually, you did, even though you're not a meditator, you saw that, and you ha had that thought, and maybe you had some shame about having the thought a little or something bit, yeah. like that. But you know, you just say, oh, these thoughts just come out of nowhere. And it's not my fault. I wasn't intentionally thinking about that. I just got triggered, right? Like I saw a bunch of crackheads and for, you know, whatever reason, maybe there was something unpleasant going on in my life that I was like, oh, this, I could totally avoid this unpleasantness of being impatient for waiting for whoever's in the, you know, art gallery or whatever it is. And I could just burn it all down. But it's just a thought. Right. And then yeah. that thought passes and you understand impermanence and you say, oh, just, you know, well, that was a really crazy thought I just had. And it's gone.
So that's one thing that meditation helps with as far as being an addict is it's just a thought. I don't have to act on it. Absolutely. Oh, and so I that'll like help that. a lot in long-term recovery. I like that a lot. So, okay, tell us more before we're out of time. I want I want you to list off everything that you have that people can go to for reference, like right. Refuge Recovery. Yeah. Where do people find out about that? So Refuge Recovery um, treatment centers, people that need treatment that are interested in this modality, refugerecovery.com. Uh, refuge recovery meetings, peer-led, vol- you know, free peer-led meetings. There's meditation that happens in every meeting, uh, refugerecovery.org. Both of those websites are kind of connected so they can find both. Okay. Um, get the book, Refuge Recovery, the book. It's on HarperCollins, came out in 2014. Get the book, read it, check it out. Uh, if you're if you're not an addict, or I think if you're listening to this, you probably are. But yeah. if you're not, and, and or if you don't want to go to the meeting, but you want to learn some meditation for your eleventh step, and you're totally happy with the twelve steps, and that fits really well for you, and you're intimidated by checking out, you know, the Buddhist alternative, but you want to just check out some meditation instructions in San Francisco, we have Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society, and people can find that at againstthestream.org. Uh, and I also teach retreats tomorrow. I have a day-long retreat at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Marin. And we teach retreats, day-longs, and, and residential retreats. So people can find all of those resources there. That's so great. Thank you so much for coming here. This has been really cool. Yeah, happy to I meet you and, and having fun. It was, it was fun to be on your show. Thanks. Happy to meet you, too. Yeah. It was great. Uh, thank you for listening. If you would like to write us, it's Radio Rehab at GoToProductions.com. That's G-O-T-O-Productions.com. The phone number, you can call or text is 415-496-9511. On the Facebook, the Instagram, and the Twitter, it's at Radio Rehab Dana. And it'd be really cool if you would, like, subscribe and like it so that we can come to your city when we do our Radio Rehab tour. Thanks for listening. Stay sober. Sex and drugs and rock and roll Is all my brain and body need Sex and drugs and rock and roll It's very good indeed Keep your silly ways Or throw them out the window The wisdom of your ways I've been 